When the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for all your tribes, those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off, from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as you, as for you, no man has been able to stand before you up to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he had promised. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them, so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And now I am about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that God has promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled, so also the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the Lord, the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off of the good land that he has given to you. This is God's word. In this text, uh, we hear Joshua's last words. In fact, we might call them famous last words. Some famous last words are very fitting. For example, the 18th century grammarian Dominique uh, Bouhour's final words were, I am about to, or I am going to die, either expression is correct. Or the 19th century surgeon Joseph Henry Green's final words recorded his own condition. He noted that his breathing was congested, and then he wrote, or he noted that his own pulse was, quote, stopped. 
or Jack Daniel's last words, one more drink, please. Other famous last words are ironic. The notoriously difficult 19th century German philosopher uh, Georg Friedrich Wilhelm Hegel's final words were, only one man has ever understood me, and he didn't even really understand me. Or Union General John Sedgwick's final words were spoken at the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse. He said to one of his soldiers, why are you dodging like this? They couldn't hit an elephant at this dist. <laughs> the Bible also records the last words of a number of significant figures. At the end of Genesis, uh, we hear jo uh, uh, Jacob's last words to his sons. And the book of Deuteronomy as a whole is, is Moses' last sermons to the tribe of Israel. In 1 Samuel 12, we read Samuel's farewell address as a public figure, although apparently he goes on living for some time. In 1 Kings 2, David gives his final instructions to Solomon. And in the New Testament, we find both Jesus' formal farewell address in the upper room at the Last Supper, in John 13 through 17, and his final seven words from the cross. But in these last words from the Bible, they're not ironic. They don't subvert these characters' lives. Rather, a common theme is preparing people for the future. Jacob prepares his sons for life after he is gone. Moses prepares Israel for life in the land after his death. Samuel prepares Israel for living faithfully under a monarchy. David prepares Solomon to lead after him, and Jesus prepares his disciples for what faithfulness looks like after his death and resurrection. Likewise, in this chapter, Joshua prepares Israel's leaders, her elders and heads and judges and officers, to lead Israel on the path of faithfulness after he is gone. Joshua's speech in this chapter, as you may have noticed as we read through it, circles around a number of common themes. And there's probably several ways that we could organize this material. This morning, though, I want to help us get into it by focusing on Joshua's two commands in this speech. Two commands. They're in verses 6 and 11. Be very strong and be very careful to love the Lord. The two commands, be strong and love the Lord. But we're going to find neither of these commands means what we might think it means at first glance. Let's begin with this first command in verse 6. Be strong. Be strong. When you hear this command to be strong, what do you picture? What does it mean to be strong? Maybe you think of someone who is muscular and athletic. Maybe the weightlifters and decathletes and swimmers who would have been competing at the Summer Olympics uh, if it hadn't been canceled. Or maybe you think of the heroes of our action movies, James Bond, Jason Bourne, John Wick. After all, summer after summer, despite the differences of which car flips, which building explodes, and which bad guy gets what's coming to him, we see a common cultural narrative reinforced by the popcorn flicks from Indiana Jones to Mission Impossible. It's typically someone who's strong, mus muscular, athletic, trim. But more than that, our heroes are totally self-sufficient. With nothing but their wits, they can hop on an airplane, travel to another continent, and save the day. They can go anywhere and do anything that's required of them, equally comfortable in a casino, fancy casino, or out in the jungle. 
And more than that, a common theme of all these action heroes is that they have to break the law to do the right thing because they have infallible moral compasses. They know better than the government or anyone else what's right to do. In short, the cultural story that we find in our movies is that being strong is being self-sufficient. Being self-sufficient, being autonomous, not needing anyone else. But it's not just our action movies. This ideal drives much of our culture. We think if I was independently wealthy, I could live where I wanted and spend my time how I wanted. After all, money means freedom, right? Self-sufficiency. If I had this degree, this skill set, I could be an independent contractor, set my own hours, be my own boss. Wealth, beauty, power, fame, skills, youth, and so on, all offer the promise of self-sufficiency, autonomy, freedom from others. But if we look again at the book of Joshua, we see the biblical picture of being strong is totally different. Look at the rest of this command there in verse 6 of your Bible. Be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. If this sounds a bit familiar, it's because it's going back to chapter 1. Almost the same command was given to Joshua when God charges him to lead Israel into the land. God tells Joshua, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law of Moses. So Joshua, at the end of his life, is passing on the command that he received at the beginning of his career as Israel's leader. He says, be very strong to keep and to do. That is to say, be strong by being obedient. Be strong by being obedient. This idea that strength can be shown through obedience runs counter to our common cultural story. So much so that it's almost incomprehensible. After all, what would a Mission Impossible movie be if Ethan Hunt obeyed the instructions he was given at the beginning, right? There'd be no movie. He's got to disobey. But this idea of being strong by obeying, it runs against our culture. But let's think about this for a minute. The same amount of water that spreads across all the fields every winter, if it's channeled, can cut a canyon or power electric turbines. Likewise, Olympic athletes don't get to that level of competition by saying, I'm in good shape, I can do whatever I want and eat whatever I want. No, they're totally disciplined. They follow strict training schedules and diets. At least in that area of their life, they obey something outside themselves. They show their strength by obeying a law outside themselves. Likewise, Joshua is saying to Israel, True strength is shown through obedience to God's law, not throwing it off. Be strong to do and keep God's law. It's the principle God gave to Joshua back in chapter 1. It's the principle Joshua has lived and led Israel by. And he's shown himself to be one of Israel's greatest leaders. And now it's the principle that he commends to the next generation of leaders and commends to us as well. Be strong by obeying. And what is it that we obey? In verse 6, it says it's the book of the law of Moses, or everything that's written in the book of the law of Moses. 
What our Bibles call the Law of Moses is a Hebrew word that may be familiar to you, the Torah, the Torah. Like our modern laws, it's binding, normative. You have to follow it or obey it. And much of Moses' law is similar to our modern laws. Do not commit murder. Do not steal. Build a guardrail around your second-story porch so no one falls off, and so on. But unlike our modern laws, the Torah includes a strong teaching element. It shows us what God values, what he cares about. God's law shows us positive values as well as negative restrictions. It doesn't just say don't do this and don't do that, but it positively says love the Lord your God. Notice as well that Joshua tells the leaders to be careful to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law. And this emphasis on what is written in the book, it's an emphasis on the actual words on the page. That is to say, Joshua is not simply commending obedience to the sort of general ideas that the Bible's on about. Rather, he's saying stick to the law as it's written. The very wording of the law, the very wording of your Bible is important. Going back to our illustration of an athlete, a training schedule that just says something like run occasionally throughout the week is not sufficient to get you to the Olympics. Olympic athletes have, have, have rigorous written out training routines. This is what I'm doing this morning, this many miles at this pace. This is what I'm doing in the afternoon. It's rigorous. And so it is with the Bible. It doesn't just give us vague generalities. Be a good person. Be nice. Love others. It spells it out in specifics. This is what love looks like. This is what justice looks like. This is what holiness looks like. It's spelled out in detail. Joshua supports these commands to be strong by obeying the law, by showing that God's work is our motive, and by warning against compromise. He shows that God's work is our motive. Joshua's last words here aren't the ancient equivalent of go out and win one for the gipper, you know, succeed by force of will alone. No, Joshua's last words are rooted in what Israel's leaders themselves are witness to. Look at verse 3. You yourselves have seen all that the Lord did to these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord who fought for you. Saying you are witnesses to what God has done. You've seen it for yourself. God has already acted. Joshua's reminding them, you yourselves saw God turn back the Jordan River, knock down the walls of Jericho, hand over Ai into your hands, throw down hailstones against enemy armies, and give you the strength to defeat much larger forces. You yourselves have seen it. You've seen God act on your behalf. And likewise, in verse 9, the Lord drives out before you great and strong nations. One of your men can put to flight a thousand. One of your soldiers is worth a thousand of theirs. Why? Because it is the Lord who fights for you. And so in verse 8, Joshua says, So cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. Up till now you've clung to the Lord and you've seen that he's acted on your behalf. And so keep obeying. Keep obeying. God's work is our motive. How much more true is this for the Christian? We too stand witness to the things God has done. And we have the witness written for us here in our Bible, not only of the, of the river Jordan being turned back, but of Jesus coming for our sake, of Jesus driving out armies of demons for our sake, 
defeating unclean spirits, defeating ultimately sin and even death for our sake. And so our motive for being strong to obey is the work God has already done. His work precedes our work, if I can put it that way. Then Joshua proceeds to warn against compromise. Verses 6 to 7, he says, Do not turn aside from Moses' law, either to the right or the left, that you uh, may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. Joshua says, stick to the path. Don't turn aside. You might think you see a better way by going up over the hill or dropping down into the valley or something, but you'll wind up getting lost. Stick to the path. Don't turn right or left. And he spells out what this compromise looks like in verse 7, and it's a cycle that's all too familiar to us. In verse 7, he says, don't mix with these nations. Don't go after them. Because you'll wind up naming their gods and swearing by them. The idea here is not just that mentioning the name of a false god like Marduk or something is going to lead them to apostasy. Rather, if you look at ancient Near Eastern treaties and contracts that were made by all of Israel's neighbors, they had these lists of witnesses. You know, when you sign maybe a marriage license, for example, you have witnesses that sign it or, or legal contracts. Well, they also had these lists of witnesses, but the witnesses were all the gods of the various parties to the contract. So, for example, Esar Haddon's treaty with the king of Tyre concludes with these witnesses. Uh, And all these uh, unfamiliar names are are different gods of the ancient world. It says, May Ninlil, who resides in Nineveh, tie you to a swift dagger. May Ishtar, who resides in Arbella, not grant you mercy and forgiveness. May Gula, the great physician, put illness and weariness in your hearts and unhealing sore in your bodies and bathe in your own blood as water. May the seven gods, the warrior gods, cause your downfall. May Bethel and Anath Bethel deliver you to man-eating lions. And it goes on and on that all these gods are witnesses. And if you break this contract, then all these curses will fall down upon you. And so what Israel is being tempted here is to say, this is just how business is done. It doesn't mean anything to stamp the names of all these gods on the end of our contracts. It's just how business is done. And we may not face this particular temptation, but I've known businessmen who uh, really struggled with alcohol because the business in their industry got done over drinks. And so they said, well, I've just got to go out for drinks even though I struggle with this and get caught up in these cycles of binge drinking because that's just how business is done. Or, well, we've got to take customers to a strip club. It's just how business is done in this industry. Uh, And we're tempted to make these same sorts of compromises. It doesn't really mean anything. It's just how business is done. But Joshua says it won't end there. Initially, it may just be a way of sealing contracts, but you'll end up serving these false gods, and finally you will bow down before them. You'll end up worshiping them, that the lure of these false gods will lead you astray. It starts with lip service. It's just part of how business is done, but you end up worshiping them. So what's the antidote then? Well, let's look at Joshua's second command in this passage, his second command in verse 11. He says, love the Lord. Love the Lord. Like the first command, we see the same adverb. Be very careful to love the Lord. Very, again, that same stress. And again, to our ears, this sounds quite paradoxical, doesn't it? After all, how can you command love? Love's a feeling. How can you command your feelings? Love's something you fall into. 
right? How can you command that? We know we don't really have control over our attractions and passions in the same way we have control over other areas of our lives. And so what are we to make of this command to love God? Well, again, going back to these ancient treaties, uh, we do find this, this, this command given often, that people who are entering into a treaty are to love the king that they are swearing loyalty to. And it really means to be loyal to him, to be faithful to him. Just like a husband and wife are faithful to each other, saying, be faithful to this king. Don't make other treaties with other kings. Honor him. And in the Bible, when we're commanded to love God, it's likely drawing on this background. Because, you know, in Exodus and Deuteronomy, it says God made a covenant. He made a treaty with Israel. And as part of that, he's saying, uh, he's giving this command, love the Lord. Be loyal to him. Be obedient to him. Be faithful to him. And so if we think of love as fidelity and obedience, we can, it makes sense how it can be commanded. But love in the Bible is never mere obedience. It's never mere loyalty. It does involve our affections and emotions and our feelings. But maybe we can get at the difference by thinking of it like this. Think of our feelings as being a bit like flames in a fire. Now, if you've done a fire in your fire pit, maybe, or, or gone camping this summer, you know that there's a couple ways to make a big flame. One is you throw a log in the fire and you throw some gasoline on it and light it on fire and you get a big flame right away. But it may not even catch the log on fire. The, flame, the gasoline may burn out before the fire ever gets going. There's big flames for a moment, but then they're gone. The other way is to crinkle up your paper and get some little kindling and make a nice fire and then add some little bit bigger sticks and logs and eventually you get the flames roaring in your fire. And it's a fire that lasts a lot longer and all you have to do is add another log every so often, right? So there's two ways to get big flames in a fire. One starts small. It starts with just structuring things carefully, and it winds up with sustainable flames. The other, you have instant big flames, but it flames out very quickly. And in the same way, we might say uh, our feelings, uh, they, can, they can flame up like a gasoline fire, infatuation, passion. It feels irresistible. But like gasoline, it might burn up without ever starting a lasting fire. On the other hand, faithful commitment. Faithful commitment to another person. Faithful commitment to God is like building a fire the right way. That you build the fire that it can burn over time. And affections grow out of the kindling of this faithful uh, commitment. And so this command here, uh, uh, be very careful to love the Lord, it might even more literally be translated, be very careful to guard your soul to love the Lord. Of course, that doesn't make quite good English, so the translation massages it to help make sense. But I think it's quite important. Be very careful to guard your soul to love the Lord. This same command to guard is what God says to Adam back in Genesis 2. He places him in the garden. And we use, you know, this is the basis for our confession of sin earlier. He places him in the garden and he says, you're to be my image bearer in the garden. And he says, you're there to guard it and to work it. And so guarding our souls is a bit like what Adam was supposed to do in the Garden of Eden. To tend our souls like a garden. Joshua says, guard your inner life and garden it. Weed out things that need weeded out. Protect it from wild bushes and branches and stuff that might be encroaching. We've got to guard our inner lives so that love for God will flourish within them. We have to be vigilant of our inner lives. 
Again, Joshua supports the command to love the Lord with a second warning against compromise. This time in verse 12. Notice what he says in verse 12. He says, if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you. He's already said cling to the Lord, but he says instead, if you, if you cling to these nations and make marriages with them so you associate with them, know that no longer will the Lord fight for you. Joshua says, don't make marriages with them. But the basic issue here, the problem isn't uh, what we might call interracial marriages or interethnic marriages. The problem isn't per se marrying a Canaanite. After all, Rahab comes into Israel and is welcomed. The Gibeonites come into Israel. Caleb is a foreigner who comes into Israel. Ruth, in the book of Ruth, right? She's a Moabite who comes into Israel. Uriah the Hittite, and so the list goes on. There's all sorts of people that marry into Israel. The problem we might say is marrying out of Israel. The, the, the real problem is religious intermarriage. He's saying you can't marry a, someone who worships Marduk or Baal or whatever false god and think that somehow this marriage is going to work out if you worship different ultimate gods or different gods. And the same warning is repeated in the New Testament. Paul uses this image of marrying someone of a different religion as like being unequally yoked. So you have a strong ox and a weak ox, and so the plow keeps pulling to the side because one's stronger than the other, right? Saying it doesn't, it doesn't work. Joshua says, the nations may be glamorous at first, and so you're tempted to cling to them, to go after them. They seem powerful. Maybe their women seem attractive or their men seem attractive, and so you want to intermarry with them. But notice what he says. They will be a snare and a trap for you. The whole idea of a snare or a trap is you don't see it till it's too late, right? The deer doesn't see the snare and puts his foot in it and then gets trapped by it. In the same way, you don't see the danger of these nations until it's too late. He says not only will they be a snare and a trap, but it will be like getting whipped on the back and having thorns in your eyes. It's hard to imagine a less pleasant image than getting whipped in the back and having thorns in your eyes. Even more serious than them becoming a snare, Joshua supports this second command to love the Lord with a second warning. This time a warning of judgment. He says, if God has been faithful to his word fighting on Israel's behalf, he will also be faithful to his word fighting against Israel if Israel turns against God. Look at verse 13. Uh, The Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but in fact you will perish from the land. And verse 14, now I'm, Joshua says, I'm about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, not one word has failed of all the good promises God has made. All the good things he promised to do, he's done. So he's faithful to his word. But by the same token, in verse 15, just as all the good things he has done, so also the Lord will bring upon you evil things until he has destroyed you from off this land that he has given you, if you transgress his covenant saying, you've seen how God's driven out all these enemy nations. If you become an enemy, he will also judge you. It's a double-edged sword, God's faithfulness to his word. He's faithful to his good promises, but he is also faithful to execute the judgment that he warrants. If you go against other gods, verses 15 and 16, if you serve other gods and bow down to them, the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and you will perish. 
Well, our instinct when we hear this warning about worshiping other gods is to feel safe, right? That's a threat to Israel to worship these false gods. And we picture maybe idols, little golden statues or carved totems. And we think we're safe. We don't have those kinds of things in America. But as Tim Keller puts it in his book, Counterfeit Gods, quote, a counterfeit god is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family and children or career and making money or achievement and critical acclaim or saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty and your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in the Christian ministry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, I'll feel significant and secure. And when we look at it that way, our heart is really full of idols. We're prone to make idols out of all sorts of things. Uh, Tim Keller draws attention to, uh, he's writing shortly after the 2008 financial crisis, and he uses as an example various CEOs who killed themselves and day traders who killed themselves, having uh, their companies fall apart or having lost a lot of money in the uh, financial crisis. I'm going to draw attention to a different idol, though. If we think about the changing views amongst many Christians about marriage and sexual ethics, I mean, uh, not to be... Um, uh, too detailed, but, but the increasing embrace of gay marriage, there's an underlying assumption amongst many Christians that you can't live a fulfilled life without physical intimacy. And therefore, uh, asking someone to remain celibate is just unthinkable. That it, you can't live a fulfilled life without, without physical intimacy. And the fact is, many of us, even sitting here, probably have similar idols in our minds. We think that would be too much to ask of someone, to be celibate for their life. And yet if our view of a true flourishing human life is that it necessarily involves physical intimacy, then what do we make of Christ Jesus our Lord, who was single his whole life on earth, who never married? Was his life not a true human life? Did he not flourish here on earth? We would say actually he shows us what true human flourishing looks like, sacrificing for the good of others. And yet we have other idols in our heart that tell us other things are necessary for a truly satisfied life. Now, you might think I'm just taking a jab at millennials whose opinions are changing the fastest on this. But actually, there's a similar issue with retirees. You may or may not know it, but the fastest growing number of people cohabitating is amongst retirees. And I've known a number of retirees that I've talked to about this, Christians who say, well, uh, you know, my, my husband or wife died. And um, if I get remarried, I'll lose their pension. And same thing with this other woman, but we love each other, and so we're living together. I mean, we love each other, and we're committed to each other, so it's all fine, but we don't want to lose our pensions. And if you really unpack the logic behind that, what are they saying? They're saying, I have to have physical intimacy to have a flourishing life, and I have to have the money from these pensions to have a flourishing life. I can't compromise on sex, and I can't compromise on money, so let's just compromise on God's law, that that's the thing that can give, right? And when you're saying that, What's really the idols here? What's your true God? Physical intimacy and money. 
We see it really throughout the Christian church that we've embraced these ideas that you can't have a flourishing and yet celibate life, although Jesus shows us the contrary. The truth is, though, when we turn any of these things into our God, like Joshua says, they become thorns in our eyes. They become a scourge to our back. For a while, worshiping money may seem fine. You don't recognize that it's a false god. You say, I'm doing well. I'm, I'm, I'm independent. right? I'm autonomous. I'm free to do what I want. I'm self-sufficient. And yet when the stock market changes, people who are saying that wind up killing themselves. Their god becomes a demon. And likewise with, uh, with, with physical intimacy. It can become a demon if that's your god, if that's what you're serving. It leads you into um, uh, ultimately being a slave. What are we to do? What are we to do? God warns us surely that his judgment is just as sure as his good promises that he keeps. And if we stop to think about it, we do have other gods. Wealth, skill, power, uh, intimacy, beauty, youth. All these things that promise autonomy and freedom become gods for us. And so if we're worshiping these other gods and so therefore are liable to God's anger and judgment, what in the world do we do? I don't mean this in a flippant way, but stick with me for a second. Here is our hope. Jesus Christ is the true action hero. We might say the last action hero, but not like Arnold Schwarzenegger. He doesn't show his strength by going against the law and beating up all the bad guys. He shows his strength by being perfectly obedient. Perfectly obedient, even when it cost him his own life up to the point of death, when all he has to do is deny God's mission, deny God's purposes, deny God's word. It's as simple as that, right? That's the temptation Satan gives him. He says, just bow down to me for a second. Bow down to me for just a second, and I'll give you all the nations of the world. saying, here's what you want, this good thing that nations will serve you. And that is good that the nations serve Jesus. He says, all you have to do is bow down for a second. It's the same temptation we face every day. Just bow down for a second. And yet Jesus resists it all the way to the point of death. And so our true action hero shows his strength, not in killing all the bad guys like John Wick or whatever, not in doing all the flips and blowing up cars. He shows his strength in dying for us. God's word is totally sure. And he says, if you go against me and you worship other gods, my anger will be kindled and there will be judgment to pay. So you have two options. You can stand before God yourself one day and explain how the idols in your heart aren't real idols. You can try and talk your way out of it, but friends, it won't work. Or you can appear before God as a servant of Jesus Christ and say, yes, I have worshipped false gods, and yet my king, Jesus Christ, died for the judgment I deserved. All these idols, whatever they are, if your idol is youth, eventually you'll age. If it's intimacy, eventually that'll go away. If it's wealth, it can flip in a heartbeat. They will all betray you in the end. But this, the true action hero, the true God, is faithful to the very end, and we see it on the cross. He is faithful to the bitter end. He will never betray you. Let us pray.